Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the home of New Zealand's only specialist evaluative UX research practice and world-class UX lab, enabling brave teams across the globe to de-risk product design and equally brave leaders to shape and scale design culture. Here on Brave UX, though, it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Peter Morville. Peter is one of those people who probably needs no introduction. He's a pioneer of the fields of information architecture and user experience and the author of five best-selling books, Information Architecture for the World Wide Web, also known as the Polar Bear Book and the IA Bible, Intertwingled, Search Patterns, Ambient Findability, and Planning for Everything. Since 1994, Peter has helped people to make sense of information and, as the founder and president of Semantic Studios, his clients have included AT&T, Cisco, Harvard, IBM, the Library of Congress, Macy's, the National Cancer Institute, and Vodafone. Before setting up Semantic Studios in 2001, Peter was the CEO of Argus Associates, where, along with Lou Rosenfeld, whom he also co-authored the Polar Bear book with, he led to be the foremost IA consulting firm in North America. Peter is also the co-founder and past president of the IA Institute and has worked as a strategic advisor for many other organizations over the years. He's the creator of the popular UX Honeycomb, a model for understanding the facets of user experience, and his work has been covered in Business Week, NPR, The Economist, The Washington Post, and The Wall Street Journal, to name a few. He regularly blogs at intertwingled.org, and Peter has delivered conference keynotes and workshops all over the world when that was a thing. And now, you guessed it, he's here with me on Brave UX. Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brendan. I'm so happy to be here. Well, it's great to have you here, Peter. This is unsurprisingly one of the conversations that I have very much looked forward to having. And I have to ask you, before we get into the depths of IA and UX and all the interesting things we can talk about there, your Wikipedia bio says that you were born in Manchester in the UK, but you don't sport a very Mancunian accent. What's the story there? Yeah, so uh, I was born in Manchester. We then moved down to Canterbury and then Margate, um, which is near Dover in the southeast um, near, the, near the ocean or the sea. So actually, w- there was a point in time when I was about seven or eight years old where I not only had an English accent, but I had the, the southern English accent. So I would talk about the bath and the classroom. But we moved to the United States when I was, when I was eight years old. And uh, I hated being the center of attention. People would crowd around me and say, say something. We want to hear you speak. And so I learned to speak American very quickly. <laughs> it re- reminds me when I was 14, I did a, a student exchange to Australia. And being from New Zealand, we uh, we actually have slightly different accents, believe it or not. And uh, yes, I was also the uh, the center of attention and uh, I tried to pick up an Aussie twang as fast as I possibly could as a result. 
So, Peter, you're in your early 50s. I really hope you don't mind the <laughs> reminder. I understand that you're a bit of a runner and that when you turned 50, you did something that would frankly scare most people. What is Dances with Dirt and why did you do it? Yeah, so um, so, so almost two years ago now, um, I turned 50. You know, I've been doing various running events, really started in my late 30s was most intense during my forties and I hadn't done so much for a while. And as I was turning 50, I just wanted to do something to push myself. And so I decided to do a 50 K ultra marathon and it, it terrified me. I mean, I did not know if I could do it and the training was hard. The event itself was actually way more fun than I expected. And that's because it was a dances with dirt is a trail marathon through woods and swamps and rivers. And, and so it becomes more of a game um, and an obstacle course than a race. And so about halfway through, I sort of shifted mindsets and realized you can't worry about your time. You just have to try to stay alive and, and have fun. And once, I, once that shift happened, it was really fun. I mean, I was tired at the end, but it wasn't it wasn't necessarily worse than a standard marathon. If I had done that as a road, right, as a road race, it would have killed me. <laughs> and why is that? Why would that have been different if it was on the road? Because that would have been straight pounding on your legs, just, you know, the same thing over and over um for 31 miles and um and and, and it it just it just wouldn't have been a fun game. <laughs> I don't, and I don't think my body could have handled it. Mm, yeah. There's something about being out in nature and the variety of the scenery. And, you know, I imagine having to watch out for snakes or bears or whatever it was that you <laughs> yeah. had to avoid to stay alive, which would probably keep you on your toes a bit more. I mean, the most fun parts were there was one stretch through the woods where you had to find the next ribbon and it was hard. And so it was like a treasure hunt sort of, I mean, we're working, we were collaborating, working together, helping each other find the next flag. Otherwise we'd get completely lost in the woods. And then not long after that, we hit a swamp where every step you'd go at least to up to your knee in mud and trying to get through the swamp without losing your shoes was the challenge. <laughs> so how many other people were you with when you were doing this event? I would guess something along the lines of about 50 people did that. Right. Yeah. So there was, it sounds like there was a lot of camaraderie and no one was yeah. sort of like putting the flag in the wrong place to misdirect people. No, it was, it was, there are, there were, there were stories of people in years previous, not necessarily runners, but people who went out before, before the runners got to various sections and changed the sign, right? The arrow. Oh, that's sent people nasty. The wrong way. So, yeah, that was something <laughs> we were worried about. Well, I'm glad you survived, Peter, that, and, and that you could be here with us two years two years on on Brave UX. It's, it's, a, it's a really good thing, especially for this podcast. So look, I, I listened, Peter, to your talk recently, Tomorrow's Architects. And in that talk, you described why you got involved in IA. You said, I wanted to organize information so that people could find what they need. Where did that desire to help people in that way come from? It's hmm. an interesting question. Yeah, I think that, you know, we all have our strengths and weaknesses. 
if I sort of think about the contrast between my wife and I, we both like to help people and to help animals just to be helpful in general, but we express it in really different ways. So, you know, she kind of enjoys more, you know, directly helping people. She's been an actual, a traditional librarian and worked at the reference desk and helped people find what they need that way. At the moment, she's working at a nonprofit organization called Meals on Wheels that delivers food to homebound people, you know, mostly older folks who can't leave their home. And so she loves helping people directly in that way. I don't like engaging with people directly all that much. Um, you know, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm an introvert by nature. So I think that information architecture and findability are some of the ways that I've been able to take my strengths and interests and use them to help people. And definitely, it was so interesting to hear you read my bio just now, because my head has been so much in farming and goats and cows recently that I, I've sort of forgotten all that stuff. Like, you know, as you were kind of saying, Peter did this and Peter did that and wrote this book. I'm like, wow, I've done a lot. Like, <laughs> I kind of <laughs> forgot about all that. But yeah, like, I, I mean, I do remember as the internet was taking off, you know, becoming a bigger thing than it had been as, cause it was around for quite a while as a quiet academic kind of endeavor. But in the early nineties, when the internet really started to grow and the World Wide web kind of was invented and took off, I just remember feeling this incredible sense of excitement about this, this potential for us to create and share information globally, right. To sort of, I mean, back then stories of, you know, someone in Russia posting a recipe on the internet and somebody in the United States getting the recipe and making the food and then them making a connection and talking with each other. I mean, those stories, you know, that had never happened before in that kind of way. Nowadays, it doesn't sound so such a big deal, but that, that period of sort of 1993, 94, 95, there was just such a sense of potential and excitement and we're changing the world. And, and so information architecture as kind of an extension of librarianship was kind of my way of trying to be part of that. Yeah. And it really was such an exciting time. And I'm not going to lie around that time. I was eight, nine and 10 years old, but I <sighs> definitely remember my grandparents getting that first computer and the sound that the motor made when I was dialing up to the internet and what you could find and learn was just an incredibly exciting time. Yeah. And it's often easy, Peter, to look back at the past with rose-tinted glasses and fondly and connect the dots. But if you were to transport yourself momentarily back there, did you have any idea at the time that what you were doing in the field of IA and evangelizing that would change the at least the digital world and the way that it has and impact as many people as it has? No. You know, we, Lou and I started growing Argus right after I got out of grad school in library science. You know, the first year was very hard. I was mostly working in isolation without a real office. Lou was in the doctoral program at the School of Information and Library Studies. Which he uh, never completed, by the way. Right, right. <laughs> And so I was, I felt very isolated and I was, um, on a pretty basic salary, kind of just making enough to pay my bills for a crappy little apartment. And we were just bringing in enough money to pay me each month. Right. So every month it was like, are we going to make enough? You know, so 
it was really after the first year that I was ready to just quit. Like I didn't know if I could continue. And I, I, I told Lou, if, 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 not, if something doesn't change, I'm going to have to go get a, like a regular job. Like this is not <laughs> working. And that actually forced him to do some soul searching and he quit the doctoral program and came on board with me. And once the two of us were working together, that was the point at which it got fun. Like, so year one was hellish year two and beyond was really fun and exciting. As, as you know, Lou is a kind of very entrepreneurial outgoing kind of high energy person. And so we were a great team and we had a lot of fun growing Argus and, you know, we were evangelizing information architecture from fairly early on, but we had no idea how well the polar bear book would do. We wrote that book. It was incredibly hard. We were, you know, we were working long hours consulting and growing a business and writing a book so that I couldn't even work that hard nowadays, right? Like that was that youthful energy. We wrote the book and, and published it and actually felt kind of depressed, like we worked so hard and we were, and then we didn't really have any expectations. The big adventure of writing the book was over. We were kind of running our company and it was going well, but we almost sort of forgot about the book for several months, you know, maybe even as much as six months where it was just kind of out there, but you know, we didn't have a sense of what was building. And then it's sort of, I forget all of the, the signs. It was like, we started to see it rising on the charts at Amazon and, you know, getting into the top hundred books, you know, uh, selling on, on Amazon. Nowadays, that would be incredible. Like, but, you know, back then it, there weren't as many, there weren't as many books for sale. It wasn't, you know, quite the same scale, but still getting into the top 100 books, you know, on Amazon's global bookstore was pretty incredible. And we started to, get this sense that something was happening, right? That this book had hit a nerve and that people were not only reading it, but sharing it. And so there, there were a few years there that were extremely exciting because yeah, we started getting invited to speak at conferences all over the world. And I would show up at some fairly remote place in Denmark and some guy would come up to me and practically hug me and just say, I love the book and <laughs> it means a lot to me. <laughs> You're like, yeah, I'm famous. I'm internet <laughs> famous. I've made it. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that still exists, Peter. I mean, when people think of you and what you've done, I mean, that book is only part of what you've done, but it was, it surely is an incredibly important and foundational part of what you've done. How glad are you that you pushed through that first year and Lou made the decision that he did? Um, oh, really, really glad. I can't. You know, we, none of us can know what our lives would be like if we went down other paths. So far, this path's been a good one, so I have no regrets. It is a good example of, of perseverance. You know, I don't, I'm not a believer in always persevering. Sometimes it's good to change course and to say, okay, like the world's telling me, like, stop. Um, <laughs> you know, but that was a good, that was a case where perseverance paid off. You've also now got the benefit of 25 years of hindsight. And as far as I know, at least up until a couple of years ago, you uh, have been still active in the fields of IA and UX. Have there been any lessons learned in the past in IA and UX that are still relevant to the field today that you believe have been forgotten or overlooked? Yeah, probably most of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
This sounds like an axe to grind. Let's go there. <laughs> well, so first of all, it's really funny. I, I, I've been aware of the potential for this. I came up with this vision for creating an animal sanctuary, some, you know, buying property, a farm where we can have animals and, and have people visit us. And so I've been doing a lot of sharing about that journey. And I knew this would happen. People have decided I've retired, <laughs> which is not actually true. I actually just finished a, a really interesting consulting project uh, two weeks ago. Still consulting. And um, I do hope to get back to some conference travel and speaking, maybe not this fall, but maybe next, maybe next winter, um, kind of get out and about a little more. I'm hoping to you know, continue kind of working and consulting and writing um, while I kind of grow this whole farm and sanctuary and animal thing. Uh, but yeah, I, I think so to kind of put it in context, kind of going back to our earlier part of our conversation, you know, after the information architecture book was published and, and became very popular and that excitement of the internet continued, right? Right. I mean, even with 2001 and the dot-com collapse and we had to close our company and yet still, you know, the internet resurged and there was, you know, Google and Facebook and mobile and the iPhone. And I mean, there was still so much going on in the early 2000s. And so I was still very positive and enthusiastic. And that kind of led me into writing my first solo book, Ambient Findability, which I think of now, not not completely in a positive way, as my most techno-utopian book. <laughs> you know, Ambient Findability was that term I used to describe a world where we could find anyone or anything from anywhere at any time and sort of setting that up as a bit of a goal. And that was before you could find yourself on your own iPhone, right? Like the books, the, the book opens where I'm on the beach with a trio, right? Like one of those old kind of mobile devices. So this was really before the iPhone took off. And I was just sort of seeing the potential future of findability, of wayfinding. And I was just in a very positive mindset around what technology could do for us. And in hindsight, I feel a little sheepish about that because since 2005, we've seen more of the dark side of the internet. And I feel, I don't feel great about being one of the early cheerleaders who was kind of naive enough to, to kind of lead people on without really critically thinking about what are some of the, the negatives and, you know, I guess what people call externalities. <laughs> of the whole thing. Yeah, that is that is something that I've also been thinking about. And there has been a growing chorus of insiders in the industry suggesting that UX is being misused by companies and that, you know, as designers or whatever you want to call us, information architects, we, we're setting traps for our users and leading them into systems that might have interesting short-term incentives, but ultimately the long-term outcome for the user is poor. Are we misusing our gifts? Yes. <laughs> so, I, and I think it's, um, it's a very hard problem. Back in the late 90s and early 2000s, when the internet was still a sort of a, an add-on to business, um, we were given a lot of freedom to just do cool stuff. And, and, and we could design things for, for users because the stakeholders, the executives, like, didn't really pay that much attention. And it's funny because I remember 
within our community, everyone would always be talking about, we need to get a seat at the table. <laughs> we need to need to get the attention at the sea level. And I always felt like, ah, be careful what you ask for. Uh, well, we, we've got the seat at the table now and UX has been you know, fully integrated into the enterprise. But what that has done is, is that now you know, UX is just business. You know, it's not, I want to make the world a better place by doing UX. It's I'm part of this business enterprise that has a profit motive. And, and it's extremely hard to do true user-centered work with it when the broader context is what we might call late stage capitalism, right? It's, and so it's not so simple as saying, well, I'm just going to change things at my organization. I mean, you're fighting your culture. You're fighting the way that human civilization is working right now. And so we can all do our bit to try to make things a little better. But I do think that the bigger, I go back to um, Henry David Thoreau, I think was, was the one who talked about the notion of striking at the root, right? And it's like, you know, for a thousand people hacking at the branches, you know, one strikes at the root. The idea, and, and, and it was Larry Lessig who popularized this in our community, you know, after working with Creative Commons and, and sort of fighting for better things in copyright, he finally realized copyright, the problems with copyright are just one of a thousand symptoms of a corrupt Congress in the United States. Unless we fix Congress, unless we fix corruption at the highest levels of government, we'll never fix any of these thousand specific things. And so he dedicated the next 10 years of his life to trying to change Congress. He was not very successful, but he did give it a good try. So that, that's where I go when I when we talk about dark patterns in UX. I think that you know you can talk about specific patterns and how we might fight them, but but unless you're looking at it in the context that it's sitting within, you're not going to get anywhere. Yeah, I can't help but wonder if we're being either too naive or too insular in our thinking insofar as suggesting that we have a cure for dark patterns right. when it seems that you know the dark pattern is actually the symptom of a more symptomatic uh, systemic sorry systemic issue that possibly lies outside of our direct control and sphere of influence yes and the the little bit of hope that that i kind of bring into this cuz i can get i can get kind of <laughs> pessimistic yeah we're um, getting pretty dark here everybody <laughs> But the little bit of hope that I bring in is what we're talking about here are complex adaptive systems where it's, I was thinking in terms of, you know, when I go in and work with an organization, I look for the levers, right? Like where are the special points of leverage where a modest amount of effort has the chance of making a big impact? And that extends all the way up to the highest levels of government and how our societies function. It's impossible to know or predict in advance which change, which nudge will have a kind of a ripple effect and really change the system. So if we all keep doing our part to try to make things better and to kind of call out injustice or kind of um, bad behavior, one of us is going to hit that lever at some point and bigger changes may happen. Do you believe that UX is compatible with capitalism? It all depends on like how you define or frame or understand UX. It's absolutely possible to practice great design on behalf of a business. And depending on how competitive your business is in the marketplace, that design might be good for the user or the customer, 
or it might not. You might say, we don't really, you know, you've got nowhere else to go. <laughs> so we're going to make this hard for you. Um, or we're going to make it really easy for you to accidentally spend more <laughs> with us. So it, it kind of gets back to, you know, how competitive is the business? Businesses that truly are competing for customers tend to practice much better UX. Whereas like in the US, if you work for, you know, for a health insurer, <laughs> like they're not very competitive. They're not, they don't, their interests are not aligned with their customers. You're, you're probably not going to do great UX. So, so you can do great design on behalf of a business, but to practice user-centered design or design that's really good for people or design that's great for the world, you know, that requires a different sense of mission and kind of a different business model. I believe in the past you've referred to it as a, a sort of business culture that's compassionate to users. What is a business culture? What does a business culture look like that is compassionate to users? I'll tell you one thing that the, if you want to find a business that's compassionate to users, find a business that's, that's compassionate to its employees, right? Because that's where it starts. If you're treating each other well, then you have the capacity to treat people outside the organization well. And I guess it kind of goes all the way back to like, you know, also self-care, right? Like are people in the organization treating themselves well? I mean, I think that there's, there, there are some examples of organizations that have, so like Amazon, for instance, I think for a long time practiced very good user experience design, but was known for not being particularly nice to its employees, right? Really pushed them hard. There's stories of people, you know, crying every day and then going back to work. But I, I don't think that's sustainable, right? Like, you know, you know, for some period of years with some level of excitement and potential, you can kind of really push people to go the extra mile. But Amazon's customer experience has totally fallen apart now. I mean, it's, you know, you're, you're, they're trying to sell you sell you ads in search results. You know, it's like, it's the equivalent of going into a bookstore and having people just shoving merchandise in your face. You're just like, I just want to buy a book. <laughs> so, you know, Amazon's user experience has totally fallen apart. And I think that's because the culture didn't have a sustainable, you know, sort of let's treat each other well and treat our customers well. I don't know how else to ask this other than just to ask it to you straight. Do you get a sense and this is a bit of a loaded question, but do you get a sense that in UX, we've maybe drank too much of our own Kool-Aid and we hold ourselves in too high regard and that has made us a little bit naive or a little bit asleep at the wheel when it comes to actually making the world a better place, which seems to have been the original intent of, of many of the people in the field, you know, 25, 30 years ago. Yeah, I think that... I was actually thinking about this earlier today. So as I mentioned to you before, we have adopted three baby goats and a mama goat just last weekend. Um, they're going to be arriving <laughs> within two weeks. I have learned that in order to look after goats, I have to build a house for goats. You know, I have to build fencing. <laughs> and so I've been doing manual labor in a way that I've mostly managed to not. I, I've, I've, made it to, I've made it to my 50s doing very little, you know, kind of, home improvement and, and certainly not a lot of fence building. I hope you're ready for the calluses on your hands that are about <laughs> yeah. to happen. Yeah. And I was thinking earlier today how privileged I've been to be able to practice information architecture in these clean air-conditioned environments with other people to chit-chat with and, um, and getting paid well and you know interesting intellectual challenges 
compared to some of the stuff I've been through the last few days, you know, which is just hard. And I don't, I don't really know what I'm doing. <laughs> I don't have a lot of people to ask for help. I'm just like, okay, let me see if I can build this fence. Um, I'm spending money. I'm investing time. Yeah, I think that within IA and UX, a lot of us have had varying degrees of privilege, and we've sort of felt. I don't know. I don't know if I want to beat it, beat up on ourselves too much, but right with that sense of mission and purpose that we want to make the world a better place, that can kind of clash with folks in sales or marketing who might have come up the hard way. They're like. I don't want to screw around with your, you know, vague abstract mission. I need to make sure that like we, you know, we make payroll next, next month. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I know what we have to do to achieve that. And it's not all pretty. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, I think it's, it, you know, the, the, the world is to, I guess to a degree, many of us, certainly in the world that I've kind of inhabited of, you know, in the United States, more kind of like, well-educated, liberal college towns. This privilege per is quite pervasive, and we have managed to live pretty nice lives without getting our hands dirty. And that's, I don't even, even mean that so much as physically as ethically. But a lot of folks haven't, right? Like they've had to do stuff that they regret or that's been hard for them morally, but they've had to push through to feed their families. You know, we have to have some level of empathy and compassion and understanding for those folks may not have had some of the same advantages or, or just luck <laughs> that we've had. You know, moving here down here to farm country, I've kind of, I guess I've become a little bit more aware. <laughs> I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm working with farmers. <laughs> and so I'm trying to <laughs> empathize with and understand them a little more. Yeah, you've raised some really interesting points there. And the systems that we have helped to create you know, like the Facebooks and the YouTubes and the Googles and all the other amazing technological advancements that have connected us. There's also been a dark side to those. And I think that dark side has been somewhat informed by the thinking on IA. And I'm not putting you in this box as the person who has, <laughs> who has been the architect of uh, the darker side of the internet. <laughs> But when you think about things like classification, which, you know, you mean you, you, you come from a library studies background and classification in IA is clearly quite an important concept. That idea of being able to classify people or objects or content into certain buckets has been used fairly effectively in recent years to pigeonhole and divide us. Mm -hmm. And no place is more evident than uh, politics for that type of behavior, in particular American politics, which yeah. I suspect many of us and the, the, you know, the other parts of the world that are listening sort of look at America with a bit of marvel and wonder and sometimes a bit of horror and disgust, uh, <laughs> yes. particularly over the last few years. Thankfully, it seems like the tide, the tide is changing. You know, is this a, a hole that as practitioners of UX and information architecture or just people in this world that we can dig ourselves out of? Yeah. So I wrote an article last year called Emancipating Information Architecture. And in it, I propose a new definition of information architecture. I, I argue that we, while information architecture is still, well, actually, I, I would say it's more important and more difficult in the context of business and technology than it's ever been. And yet, I think we have to go beyond business, beyond technology. And so I propose a new definition that information architecture 
is the design of language and classification systems to change the world. Uh, and so I, you know, I use that, those words, language and classification very purposefully um, for the exact reasons that you just brought up, right? You know, we've tended to focus on, you know, a classification system or taxonomy for an e-commerce website, but language and classification is used to talk about people and animals all the time. And those words and categories have tremendous amount of power. And our community, because we're good at this stuff, has an opportunity to affect positive change in how people use words and categories. And so, you know, there are all sorts of contexts that might not pay so well, right? They might not be the best business opportunities, but where we can maybe help to change the direction of where human civilization is going. Because I'm not, things are definitely better here um, in the US right now, but I see what happened in the past four years as a symptom of an underlying problem, not just an isolated crazy four years. That underlying problem has not gone away here. So I've personally- What is that problem, Peter? What is that problem? I mean, one, one term that's being used is white supremacy, right? Like, and it's hard to separate what the politics of the United States from that term right now. Another is just a sense of, of human kind of power, like the right to power over other people and certainly over all of animals and all of nature, right? And so, you know, that one is mother nature is starting to warn us in a big way that if we don't start coexisting with our fellow creatures and our environment, we may not exist for much longer. So there's some really, really big challenges and trends that my mental model for what's happening, and I think it's still happening, is we are all on a bus headed for a cliff. And every once in a while, someone screams like, there's a cliff, we're going to, you know, and everyone's like, no, whatever, like, you know, be quiet. And nobody has actually figured out how to get hold of that steering wheel and turn yet. Right. So, but again, like this is a weird source of hope, but the closer you get to the cliff, the more people see where we're headed. And there's some critical moment where enough people are terrified, right? Like we don't want to go off that cliff that there's the potential for, for mass collective action and, and, a, and an actual real change of trajectory. So unfortunately, I think it's going to have to get scarier <laughs> before we change our ways. Yeah, before people realize that we're not on the magic school bus. <laughs> yeah. Now let's let's bring this this idea that we've been talking about down to sort of some sort of tangible level for people listening. Now I was listening to a, another podcast that you'd been interviewed on in the last couple of years, and you said I don't really like categorizing people, which was in response to someone asking you about being vegan. Mm. And I thought that was a highly curious thing for an information architect, yeah. a, a founding father of information architecture to say, is there no longer a place in IA for absolutes? I love, uh, that's a great question. I think that information architects have always been wary of being categorized because we understand the power of labels and categories. What I, especially when we talk about people, because there's so much power going on in that, in the language and classification around people, I strongly prefer spectrums over categories, right? So 
you know, if you sort of ask me, Peter, are you a vegan? I have to ask you, what, you, what are the rules for that? Like how, like, it's really, you know, you can get down to really specific details of whether or not I actually count as a pure vegan, right? Like, and so I prefer to say I'm vegan-ish, right? Like I'm fairly high on the vegan spectrum, but you know, every once in a while I, you know, it's like our daughters might order a pepperoni pizza and I just can't resist having a piece, right? And so it's like, you know, from a pure, you know, a purist philosophical perspective, you know, I would prefer not to eat animal products. And, you know, as I said, again, like I just moved down to farm country, right? I'm living amongst farmers. We have the cows that are live that are, we have, we have five baby calves that are, that are living like right next to me, <laughs> you know, like they're living in our field and I feed them grain every morning. And yet they are, you know, owned by a, a beef farmer and they, you know, they're not going to get to stay here forever. And, you know, I have to kind of reconcile myself with, you know, the role that I'm playing in this system. And ultimately I'm not a hundred percent against people, you know, eating animals. I am a hundred percent against factory farming, right? The large scale kind of, there's so much cruelty to people and animals in that, in those systems. I think they're just pure evil and they, we need to abolish them one way or another, but a small scale farmer where your cows are mostly living happy lives, I can't necessarily say that's wrong. Right. So, you know, so. But there would be some people out there to your point that would go, Peter, you're not vegan enough. <laughs> right. You exactly. Know? They live in the, in the world of the absolute, yeah. which stri and strikes me as being the danger that the sort of trends around gender identity and sexual orientation and yeah. all the other things that we've yeah. seen, the re this rejection of the, the pigeonhole uh, se seems to be fighting against, for lack yeah. of a better word. The, the funny thing is, I haven't actually bumped into any vegans who would criticize me, you know, for being vegan-ish. There's plenty of my friends and relatives who are, you know, full on omnivores and love to eat steak and who love to pick holes, right? Like, Peter, I heard you had a slice of pepperoni pizza last week, you know? <laughs> so, and I think that that actually is a sign that of people who are struggling with their own place, you know, and, and their own morality, right? It's a, it's, it's messy that I, I don't, I don't believe in striving for purity. Um, I think that's dangerous. And I think that, I mean, there's a funny term I heard from a guy who was defending hunting. He hunts, he lives in rural, the rural kind of, I guess, Western part of the country. And he hunts elk and feeds himself and his dog during the winters on elk. And he's arguing that his way of living is more sustainable than most vegans. And he used the term fossil fuel vegans, right? So it's like, if you're, if you're going to the grocery store and buying your lettuce and your tomatoes, you know, from some big chain, right? I mean, where did those things come from, right? Like hundreds, thousands of miles away, you know, on trucks or airplanes or who knows what, boats. How many fossil fuels were burned in order for you to have your tomato? And so there's very few people who are living, a, you know, this pure life, um, not causing damage to uh, the planet and its creatures. So we can all try to do our part. We can all try to do better. But I, I really try to judge people less and less over time. Mm. It's like we're, we're all living in glass houses while throwing <laughs> right. stones, not realizing that <laughs> right. we're living in a glass house. Right. 
So bringing this back to to sort of fundamentals of IA, have we effectively killed the checkbox? You know, we're not, we're not going to get rid of categories, and they have there's a lot of value. I mean, color is a good example, right? Like the colors in a crayon box, the lines between one color and another color are arbitrary. There really are no colors. <laughs> there's just this spectrum, and there's no there's not there's no line between this color and that color. But it's really helpful for us to kind of pretend that there are and to say, well, that's red and that's blue and that's green. There's value in checkboxes and categories. We just have to be aware of the danger. And again, when we're talking about something where power comes into play, like categorizing people, you know, are you male or female? Just only providing those two options, right? That causes harm. Mm -hmm. It's not enough. Yeah. This part of our conversation has been reminding me of something else that I've believe I've picked up on in our community over recent times, which is this personal frustration that many practitioners have with their reading of the ideal of how IA and UX should be practiced yeah. and then returning to what, you know, the seeming seemingly a sort of dark and, and drudgery of their day to day where they're not able to actually live up mm. to those sort of purest ideals in your 25 plus years in the field, have you got any advice or any words of wisdom or reassurance that you can share with the community about holding themselves to such high standards? Yeah, there was, there was actually some advice that I heard back in library school. So it would be about 1993. And that advice was to embrace your constraints. Actually being given a much higher level of freedom can be terrifying and paralyzing. And I've had experiences. I, I had one project that I got to design the future of mobile search and to think, you know, five to 10 years out, blue sky. And I thought this was going to be the best project ever. And I hated it because I, I realized I'm just making stuff up. Like we can't test this. We don't have any users. And it was awful. So I, I would say that over, you know, one of the things that's changed for me over that sort of 25-year period of consulting is in the early days, I thought I knew the right way to do things. We had a method and we would try to, you know, we would be very bullheaded about trying to like, you know, follow these steps. <laughs> and then our clients would say, but that's not going to work here. And we were like, no, it has to. <laughs> and so I was a lot more forceful about trying to follow a particular methodology. And it really upset me when we couldn't do something. Whereas now, Often the parts of a project that I enjoy the most are the unexpected or unique constraints. I worked on a project um, up until about a year ago. It was about two years, two years working with this one client where there was a big chunk, a big project where the CEO had said that he wanted us to try to solve this findability problem with more of a kind of question and answer, choose your own adventure approach rather than faceted search. Now, I was convinced that faceted search was the simplest way to solve the problem, probably the most effective way to solve the problem. I tried to convince our clients at the beginning and they said, "We, you're probably right, but like our CEO wants us to do this. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, let's try it. And it was so much fun, right? Because we got to try to design an information system that worked a really different way than 
the 20 other systems I've worked on that, that do faceted search. At the end of it all, I think we probably found the end result of that project probably is going to be that they're going to use both question and answer approach and faceted search. So they did realize the limits of this Q&A approach, but it was so much fun and so refreshing to have this totally new constraint imposed on us. And I think that that is the mark of someone who, when you get to a certain level of experience, then you start to enjoy the stuff that's hard. <laughs> so now when my clients say, well, we can't do it that way, it's like, oh, okay. I mean, why is that? But but then like, well, what can we do, right? And and we end up doing something new that is really fun. So, you know, the danger of reading a book on, you know, a particular UX methodology is that it makes you want to do it just that way. And it is helpful to have some experience doing it in that particular way. But the fun creative stuff is like, understanding why that way works in some contexts and then figuring out how to adapt it to something new. Yeah. It's almost like you need to sort of not, not try and white knuckle your way through everything and a bit of water under, under the bridge and dealing with people enables you to see that that's not always the most effective approach. You mentioned the hard stuff and I, and I wanted to ask, you know, in your consulting career, has the hard stuff more often than not been the soft stuff, you know, the people stuff? Yeah. In the beginning, for several years, as we were doing information architecture, we were, and I think this applies to the UX community as a whole, because I saw this with the, the rise of adaptive path um, in UX, like we were sort of pioneering these methods and trying to figure out like, what's the best information architecture in this context? And what's the best user experience and how, what methods and tools and tests can help us get there? As I mentioned, we had more freedom back then because the stuff wasn't so central to the business. Now, you know, I feel that the methodology space has kind of been stagnant. Um, I think Peter Merholt said something like, you know, he loves to say things in a somewhat provocative way. He said, you know, UX methodology hasn't advanced in a decade, right? Like nothing. It's just the same as it was 10 years ago. I think he's mostly right because we've, most of our attention has been, has shifted to how do we convince people? <laughs> you know, how do we get stakeholders on board? How do we satisfy their um, goals? Not so much the technical questions of like, what would be the best journey for the customer, but what journey can we design that's sort of a, you know, a compromise between <laughs> what the, what the user needs and what the business wants. So let's talk about that. How do we most effectively get stakeholders on board? I think there's a passive, I have a passive and an active answer. The passive answer is there's only so much you can do when you have a critical mass of executives who kind of like came of age before the internet and before technology was a thing. And we still have like, you know, a bunch of folks running organizations who don't really get the internet. Like, Bl you know, bless they, them. <laughs> and, so that's the passive piece where it's like, just wait, <laughs> like, wait. Until, <laughs> that's wait very until, morbid, Peter, but yes, there is truth in that. I know. Yeah. The, the active, the active answer is I've been surprised by how often, and this is something, a lesson I have to learn over and over again. I hear that somebody, you know, somebody's putting up a roadblock to something we want to do that we think would be good for the user. I have this tendency to assume they 
fully understand the situation and have decided this for business or political reasons, right? Or, or personal preferences. And yet almost always that's wrong, right? It's, it's actually that they are missing a piece of the puzzle. And if I actually take the time to explain to them why I think this might work better, it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily I'll be completely right. They might then explain their perspective and we'll actually find a, a happy compromise, right? Not, not some just tortured middle ground, but you know, actually more of an insight, like, oh, you were reluctant because of this. I'm trying to do this because, and there's like a better idea that comes out of the two of us talking. And so there, there's actually a tremendous amount of opportunity just in this space that is, is basically misunderstandings, you know, miscommunication, misunderstandings. I like to think about mental models, right? And, you know, we all kind of operate with these various mental models of like, how does a light bulb work? And we apply it to people too, right? Why is this person doing what they're doing? And mental models are super useful and like wrong an awful lot, right? Like, you know, maybe mostly wrong. And so if we're able to, you know, this is where like mindfulness meditation comes in, right? Like being able to be calm and in the moment and be like, right, before I charge ahead with my preconceptions, are there some more open-ended questions I could ask, you know, that maybe I could actually learn? Like, no, my mental model's wrong about this person. I mean, I've had just some really amazing experiences where we realized we're actually on the same, like we, we want to achieve the same goals. We just had different mental models. Yeah. And, and sometimes I believe comes from the fact that, well, this is an assumption in terms of my own experience, that words are limited in their ability to convey true, the true meaning of something. And in business, we are often, often dealing with a lot of abstractions a lot of intangibles. What impact have you seen in helping to shift people's mindsets or helping them to understand something that you're trying to convey to them has come by actually introducing them to a user, a customer, a person that is trying to use their software or you're trying to better understand their, their worldview? Yeah. So a few different answers to that. One is because words and language can lead to so much easy misunderstanding, right? That's one of the great values of sketches and wireframes, right? To sort of the pictures, right? So you, you can all talk about a, a web strategy or a digital strategy and everyone's nodding their heads and everyone has a different idea in their head about what it means. And so you, you know, you gotta, you gotta sketch things and then be like, okay, is this what you were thinking? And I love it that Abby Covert is what, working on a book about diagrams and diagramming right? Because that is a visual language that can help move us towards shared understanding that most of us never learned in school, you know, what, how to make a good diagram, how to, you know, how can you go wrong? So I, I think that that's a really good subject to sort of try to help people with. Yeah, we were just talking about removing the abstraction and, and what impact you may have observed by actually introducing these stakeholders, these executives to yeah. their customers, you know, in, in a literal sense, in a real sense. Yeah, yeah. so, that, I mean, so, you know, one of the most basic early lessons for us was the power of user research, usability testing. Like, the funny thing is that coming out of library school, 
right? We were taught in library school that we're now we're, we're librarians. We know how to organize information, right? We know the right ways to organize. And it was just, it was the first couple of years of growing our company Argus where Lou and I were both really interested in information architecture as an interdisciplinary practice, not just library science, but, you know, we recognize lots of disciplines had value for information architecture. And we started learning a lot about human computer interaction. Um, there's a guy, Keith Instone, who kind of joined our company and, and kind of helped bring that into the organization. And, you know, we started realizing like, we don't know how to organize stuff for people. Like we need to talk to those people and, you know, do card sorting and do usability testing and, you know, ethnography when possible. And, and, you know, the more that you can bring stakeholders into that journey, the better, right? So having them in the room, you know, you got to balance that with like the intimidation factor of some vice president looking over your shoulders, you're doing a card sort, but you know, sometimes actually having them physically there, other times recording the session and, you know, getting them to watch the videos, right? So maybe like watching them together so that you can kind of comment on them and make it more of a fun social experience. But, you know, getting folks to see the pain of the user, the customer, there is no substitute. And that's, and that goes for me too, as a consultant or an information architect, like I, one of the reasons I almost always insist on doing user research as part of my project, and it's a fight I still have to fight over and over and over again. They're like, we've already done that. Right? Like we, we did some user research last year. <laughs> like We've done, we've ticked that box. Yeah. And it's like, okay, number one, you probably haven't done it the way I want to do it. And you haven't asked the kinds of questions. You, my user research is based on hypotheses that I form about what I think might be wrong and where I think the opportunities may lie. So like, I can't even do my user research until I've talked with stakeholders and looked at content and understood the, the domain better. So you probably haven't done it the way I'm going to do it anyway, but I need to do it because I want to get motivated, right? Like it's when I see people struggling that I get excited and more intellectually and emotionally engaged in the project. And that like helps power me through, right? The hard, you know, the, the, the hard, messy stuff of trying to figure out you know, what's a new model for, for this um, environment. And so I think the motivational piece of user research of sort of inspiring people and, and kind of bringing passion into the work, it's so important. It's not just the intellectual thing of like, how does somebody organize something? It sounds like that's almost one of the, the keys to changing the business culture and building that design practice. Yep, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've heard stories of folks who have got, I mean, there was one story in particular, I remember where this woman was leading the UX group within her organization. And she realized that, that the biggest blocker in the, in the enterprise were middle managers, right? And they were basically like, they were trying to preserve the status quo. And so they kept pushing back on UX. And so she really got them engaged in design education. Like she started Getting, I mean, she sent a bunch of them to like the Stanford D school to like actually spend several weeks learning about all these UX methods and design thinking. And, and she sort of enlisted them as, as allies, right. As people who are like, oh, now I see the light and I want to be part of the solution. And so, yeah, there's uh, the more folks that you can, you know, kind of engage and inspire in, in kind of like really seeing the possibilities of making things better for their customers, the better. 
Yeah, it's huge. I mean, I, I see that here at our lab. It's designed with people, not designed to people, yes. and it makes a yes. huge it makes a huge difference to the outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. Peter, I understand in recent years you've undergone a bit of a transformation as far as your own perspective on the world and and how you view your connection to it. What has that transformation been, and what did inspire you to to go down this different path? Yeah. Yeah, it's funny because I, I, I think um, there's probably a, a number of different paths that I'm going down at the moment. I'm not certain if they're all totally connected or not. You know, one has been this movement towards being in a bigger kind of farm-like property or an animal sanctuary or whatever we want to call it and, and being more actively engaged with animals. And that actually came from sort of reflecting. I was kind of thinking back, what was it that I that I really liked and cared about when I was a kid. And I, and I re remembered how much I loved animals and loved reading animal books. And, and I feel like in order to kind of thrive in this, this world of business, uh, you know, I, I kind of repressed a lot of that for quite a long time and just, you know, fully engaged in information architecture and the internet and business and, you know, that's fine. But now I have an opportunity to kind of reconnect with my childhood and actually you know, kind of bring more animals into my life. But I've also been thinking more about feeling. So lots of folks have different attitude towards the Myers-Briggs test and like, you know, you know, the personality types and so forth. In the reading of the type that I am, there, there was kind of a lot of truth to it. And certainly that I'm more of a thinker than a feeler, much more intellectual than emotional. And I don't think that's all good at all. <laughs> like, and I, I sort of, um, I kind of joke with our younger daughter that I, that I'm dead inside, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think it's quite that extreme, but I don't cry very often, right? And, um, and you know, I cried more when I was a kid. And I don't, again, I don't think that's all good. So I've been trying to reconnect more with feeling and of course <laughs> I've been gone about this by reading books. <laughs> which is probably the <laughs> wrong way to do it. But, you know, I got pretty interested in grief, um, in trauma, in death, in, in some of those, you know, very emotional topics that we can all relate to that affect us all, but that in our culture, we tend to not talk about so much and to sort of repress to a degree. And particularly for men. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I guess partly this is me getting older and, you know, death becomes a more real thing. And I feel that this is an area where I think indigenous cultures are much better than, than we are, you know, where death is really just viewed as a part of life. It's all part of the natural kind of circle of life. And it's not bad. It's not something you shouldn't talk about. You know, I've written and, and talked about um, this, this trip last year to Guadalajara, Mexico, where I had this wonderful just car trip with this guy who just was telling me about the day of the dead right? and the celebrations and the costumes and the dancing. And, and the whole idea of the day of the dead is that that, that day in particular, your dead are with you, right? Your, like your ancestors are with you and you talk to them and you remember them and you put photographs of them up. And I was really inspired by that. And so um, last year for the first time, we celebrated <laughs> Dia de Muertos as a family. And I, and I hope that we continue that and it becomes a tradition because it's a really wonderful thing to, to recognize that the dead are still with us, right? And that they're not lost. You know, I think it, it can help us 
feel less fear of, of our own deaths um, and of the deaths of others, you know, and for me, it, it all goes back to nature, right? Like we are animals. <laughs> we are still part of nature, uh, even though we don't always classify ourselves that way. And we're still subject to the laws of nature and this, the cycles of birth and death and rebirth. And, you know, it can be a beautiful thing rather than this ugly, dark thing, just depending on how we think about it and feel about it. Thank you for sharing that, Peter. I think it's a really good reminder, particularly after such a trying 18 months for everyone that I'm sure that's listening to remind ourselves to connect with ourselves and with people around us and also with the people that have since passed. Yes. Peter, I'm going to bring us down to the close of the show now. You've said in the past, and I'm going to quote you, if you really want to make a lasting impact in an organization, change the people, help them to understand. What do you want the people working in UX today to understand? What change do you wish for them? I guess to recognize that before they're technicians, they are activists. <laughs> the fight that they need to fight is to make the world a better place. I would broaden it from, you know, I don't even like the term user-centered design so much or human-centered design because whenever you center something, you move other things or beings to the periphery. Let's think about uncentered design, right? Who's missing um, from our focus, from our circle of care, you know, trying to expand our perspective on what is it that we're doing? Who are we doing it for? Who are we helping? Who are we hurting? But really we are activists. We need to learn from other activists what works in affecting change. There's a long history of activism, right? Of, 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 of fighting for positive change. There's a lot of folks who don't know so much about information architecture that know a lot about activism. Um, and so I think we need to learn from the folks who've, who've done this. And there's an exciting part to that, right? That, that we do have power within large wealthy organizations uh, that have very broad impacts. We have some power to affect positive change um, and we should use that as best we can. What a great note to end on. Peter, this has been a truly deep and meaningful conversation. We've covered a lot of ground and you've shared some really fantastic stories and insights with us today. Thank you for so generously sharing them. Well, thanks, Brendan. It's been wonderful talking with you. And thank you, Peter, for your incredible contributions to the field of IA and UX over the past 27 years. <laughs> well, thank you for reminding me of them. I'd forgotten. <laughs> Sorry to remind you that you're in your 50s as well, more than once <laughs> no, during this okay. conversation. <laughs> if people want to find out more about you and Semantic Studios and also the books that you've written, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, semanticstudios.com, intertwingled.org, and uh, I am Morville on Twitter. Perfect. Thanks, Peter. And to everyone that's tuned in, it's been great having you here too. Everything that Peter and I have covered will be in the show notes, including where you can find Peter, plus all of the resources that we've discussed, Peter's books included. If you enjoyed the show and you want to hear more conversations like this with world-class leaders in UX design and product management, don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe. And until next time, keep being brave.